This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Senjan in Berlin. Do you share a living space with someone? You probably did at some point in the past. Take a moment to consider some occasion of tension you might have had with your living partner. Maybe it was just this morning. Maybe it was your first college roommate decades ago. If you like the rest of us, that conflict is probably still alive in you right now, and you're probably wishing it had gone differently. Living together well sounds simple, but in reality, it's one of the hardest things to do well and wisely. How can we use the conflicts that arise in everyday living situations to reflect on why we are the way we are and to better understand the other? How can conflict be leveraged to enrich our relationships rather than deteriorate them? So these are the questions that Sen and four experts on community life will guide us through on this first of a two-part program on navigating conflict in shared living spaces. And by the way, with whomever you live, who last did the dishes? By the time I was 11, I'd been taking piano lessons for three years. Practicing wasn't exactly at the top of my list of favorite activities. I was more into reading edition after edition of Teen Magazine, perusing advice columns, and flipping through double-page spreads about makeup and boy bands. I was supposed to practice one hour of piano every day. One day, I'd gotten completely absorbed in a stack of these magazines and lost track of time. My parents came home, and the first thing my mom asked me was, Did you practice? My then too honest self had to answer truthfully. I shook my head. My mother flew into a rage. She demanded to know what I had done instead. Again, like a too honest idiot, I told the truth. I was reading magazines. This infuriated my mother even more. She grabbed me by the arm, pulled me out of bed in my pajamas, stood me in front of the staircase, and told me to get out of the house. It was late at night and cold. I was terrified. It was a moment where I knew somewhere inside of me that my mother would most likely not kick me out of the house for not having practiced piano. But my emotional body believed every word she said. I could feel my mother trying to break my will, and I was a willful child. In the end, after what seemed like an eternity of standing in front of the door, Wondering how I was going to survive in the cold night in my pajamas, my mother made me promise, through my hyperventilated crying to the point of nearly losing consciousness, that I was going to obey her. I had to swear to her, through my tears and terror, that I really was going to practice piano as she demanded me to for one hour every day. Finally, she relented and told me to go to bed. I didn't know it at the time, but this incident, and others like it, would make me extremely sensitive to power dynamics, social hierarchies, and gave me a heightened awareness of whenever there might be even a hint of conflict coming my way. I had a sixth sense just walking into a room as to if there were undercurrents of conflict between the people there. I could tell within one interaction who was seeking favor with whom to strengthen their social position, and who didn't care about such things, indicating their relative position of strength and power in the fold. 
Conflict. Universal and persistent, just like death and taxes, it's one of the things you can count on when it comes to human systems. And it gets even juicier when it arises in the most prosaic of settings, one we've all experienced at some point in our lives, shared living spaces. Over this two-part program, I'll be speaking to four experts in conflict navigation with a particular lens on how conflict manifests in shared living spaces over a lifetime, starting from our families of origin, moving on to roommates, living together as a couple, and into co-living systems like intentional communities. I'm joined first by Laird Schaub, longtime community founder, facilitator, and trainer, who tells me about how power dynamics and hierarchies are apparent in a family setting. We can think about family dynamics where you've got multiple people. We got mom and dad, perhaps siblings. So you've got dynamics there where you have to figure out how to share the space. However, that was not cooperative. It's generally hierarchic, where the parents have power that the kids don't have. For the most part, all the major institutions, school, church, family are hierarchic, generally speaking, not where everyone's voice counts and we work it out together. As a child, this seemed painfully unfair to me. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I was okay with adults having more power than me sometimes. After all, they were the ones who drove me to see my friends, bought me CDs for my Walkman, let me go away to summer camp. What I wasn't okay with was when things like this piano incident happened that made no sense to me and left me terrified and traumatized for many years into my adulthood. But what was even more unsettling was that even in my childhood, I saw these traits of dominance and power flexing come out in me towards other kids. It happened when there were other kids who were obviously lower in the pecking order. I saw myself behaving towards them the way that the other kids behaved towards me. Bullying, threatening, belittling, I couldn't understand it when it happened. At the time, I thought I knew better than to perpetuate the same things that were happening to me. So learning how to do this requires effort and it requires unlearning these competitive conditioning that we're steeped in. And a lot of people don't even know that they've got that until they run into it when they are with others. For Laird, conflict is not only disagreement about what to do, but there's an emotional component which means that when people disagree, there's reactivity. Welcome back to Laird, but let's switch gears for a moment. I'm still thinking about how I behaved in not-so-great ways when I was a kid, when I could sense that I could get away with it. In middle school, for the longest time, I was pretty close to the bottom of the barrel in terms of social rank. At one point, I was being bullied by more than half my class. So much so that when I wanted to read my book at recess, I trained myself to walk and read at the same time so that I would never be a stationary target for kids who I knew were coming for me. While walking and reading, I would learn every few seconds to lift my eyes from the page to scan for incoming threats, and my peripheral vision was stretched to be able to sense whenever someone was sneaking up on me. So, when in the middle of the school year, a new girl joined her class, one who had even nerdier traits than me, I couldn't stop myself. I saw my chance to finally have a reprieve from being the lame kid and started to pick on her, making fun of her when I could have been welcoming, not inviting her to sit with me at lunch when I knew she would have appreciated it, and generally making her life just a little more difficult than it needed to be. Not moments I'm proud of. Looking back, 
I can see just how desperate I was to feel like I belonged, even if it meant estranging another kid. These days, I can see much more clearly that the bullying and the conflicts that happened between me and the other kids who made my life a living nightmare had a lot to do with how they were parented. And that made me wonder how their parents modeled to them how to navigate conflict when it happened. What kind of conflict happened in families or with kids? I think it's the same type of conflict that happens with adults. That's Maria Silvia, community facilitator and parent. Maria is originally from Argentina and has lived in North Carolina for 20 years. In our pre-interview, Maria reflected with me how far she's come as a parent since her daughter was young and what she's learned about holding conflict between adults and children. When I first noticed my lack of tools was working in schools with children, I stumbled into a system that was struggling to manage discipline with kids. What I was seeing looked very crazy and definitely inefficient. A system in which adults were investing enormous amount of energy and everyone was unhappy. So I started just looking for tools then. And I started learning, how do we even address kids? How do we talk to them? How do we have conversations with them? For Maria, conflict is what happens when we're unable to stop our inner world and our inner dialogue, which leads us to not be able to connect with the person in front of us. We are very immature in learning. Kids have a lot to say, even at a pre-verbal stage. So I would say that a lot of the conflict that happens with kids and little kids, the power struggles, the tantrums, it's because adults are not listening. When children feel heard and seen, they de-escalate a lot. For example, this horrible expression that we have, at least in this country, the terrible twos, I think Americans call that aid. The terrible twos. The toddlers, the tantrums. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine a world where, you know, you don't have to have tantrums? A lot of that is created by adults, really, in our inefficient approach that lacks curiosity, I think, to the experience of a child. Disciplinary measures like shouting, confining to the bedroom, and the ever so effective. I'm going to count to three. <laughs> That's an example of a lot of energy invested in something that does not work. And I see it also in families, sanctions like time out or you did this, so now you don't get to use your phone when the act of the child and the sanction have no connection whatsoever. It's completely random. So that creates a lot of energetic demand on everybody. This kind of arbitrary punitive act is familiar to most of us. Getting grounded, having our privileges revoked, being assigned extra duties or chores that have nothing to do with what the problem was. These methods of dealing with parent-child conflict can seem utterly disconnected from the issue at hand and can create confusing structures of cause and effect in the child. And yet, it is still important for the parent to instill a sense of boundaries and natural law in the child 
so they develop an internal sense of how to conduct themselves in the world. How can adults create more organic systems that actually help both the child and the parents in moments of conflict and consequence? What I have done is to think what happens to an adult who does that. So this definitely requires, at least at this stage, when we are parenting in a way that we were not parented, this requires a lot of intentionality on the parts of the adults and creative thinking, because the places that we are going to go are the random consequences. A better way is to think, if I were an adult and I break my phone, what would happen to me? What would happen in my world when nobody is telling me, oh, you broke your phone, so now I'm going to do this to you? Well, a natural consequence, it could be that I will have to save some money to buy a new phone. So if the child breaks a toy or an item that belongs to the household, maybe the child needs to generate some income to replace it. And of course, it's not about the real money value. It's about the child having a body experience of when I break something, even if it wasn't intentional, there is consequences. Of course, this is not about putting kids to work, making money to replace things they've broken. It's about the child having an embodied experience of the natural consequences when they need to make reparations to fix what has been broken literally or metaphorically. But what about when the parent is really at the end of the rope? When I was six, we had just moved to Canada from China. My mother had left for an afternoon, and I was home with just my dad. I got upset that my mom hadn't come back yet and started to cry. My dad was at a loss for what to do. He tried cajoling, distracting, reasoning, making fun of me, all for naught. I was upset, and it was going to stay that way. At one point, he grabbed both my arms and dragged me across the floor while I held my body limp, passively resisting all his efforts to snap me out of it. All I wanted was to be upset. When everything else fails, <laughs> by this I mean when my creative thinking has reached a limit and I cannot come up with what's the logical consequence for this behavior, I would go to this behavior is costing mommy or auntie a lot of energy. This requires that there is a good relationship with the child. So for them, it's very meaningful that you as the adult are losing energy because they are used to your energy in terms of your attention, your humor, your compassion, your presence when they are in trouble, your being near them if they need you. So if they are not used to that, then this tool will not be efficient. But if you have established that connection, the child doesn't want this adult to be depleted. So that's also one that it's very efficient and works with kids as young as two. They can understand the difference between an engaged adult and an adult that is completely tired and bored and out of patience with what's happening. This is costing me a lot of energy. A true and vulnerable statement from an adult to a child, framing the adult as also a human being who gets depleted, 
and not as an entity with infinite resources. The word of caution there is that as the adult who holds the power, you want to be in so much sobriety using this tool because this tool could be used to exercise your power over the child as well. When the child is doing something that it's perfectly fine, let's say crying over a broken toy, if you don't like what's happening as the adult or you are uncomfortable, you could say, well, this is causing me a lot of energy, but there's nothing wrong that's happening. So every tool has the potential of creating intimacy and connection and a good route to conflict navigation and power abuse. So intentionality and sobriety, especially on the person who holds more power in the situation, is crucial. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But it is true that if something is happening that the adult is simply annoyed with, but nothing damaging is happening, and you say this is costing a lot of energy, the child will learn that crying is simply not all right, or that crying will cause the adult to become tired. And, and I guess it takes also a certain level of awareness of the context that you're occupying, because if the child is crying in the privacy of your home versus the child is crying in the middle of a movie theater, then, you know, the now I, I don't want to use the word consequences, but the results are different. And I think that children bring a gift to adults that, you know, we can choose to receive it, which is they are a powerful mirror where the adult can see themselves. So if a child is crying in the movie theater and me as the adult, I start freaking out because what would others think? Isn't that a powerful image of myself and my values? What do I value in this moment? Whatever is happening to this little human that's upset or whatever that stranger that I don't know is going to be thinking of me as a mother, for example. But of course, different settings will require different approaches. The ways in which we saw conflict manifest in our families of origin, what kind of life energy it had, how people responded to it, and ultimately the meaning we made for ourselves from it stay with us. This formative time of our youths is a fertile field, ready to receive the seeds of life experience. And though we may not have known it at the time, these seeds take root, and over the course of our lives, fruit and yield their own seeds. When I was 18, I moved out of my family home in Calgary, Alberta, and across the country to start a new life at McGill University in Montreal. The university assigned me and two other young women to live together. We were, ostensibly, all in our first year in our Bachelor of Science. Except, Karen and Francine loved to party. The door to our apartment in our residence building was permanently propped open. There were always half-empty beer bottles standing around our flat. It smelled regularly of weed and rancid alcohol. Once, they had had a party while I'd been out late at the library. And when I'd come back, there were people passed out in our living room on the couch bottles and garbage everywhere. The next morning, I learned that someone had thrown up right outside my bedroom door, and Francine had used my towel to clean it up. And she hadn't even washed it, or told me about it. I had to find out from someone else. No matter how well I might have done in high school, there weren't any classes that prepared me to deal with that. 
What makes conflict different in shared living situations for me just has to do with the fact that when we're living together, we're exposed to much more of each other's lives, not just in terms of sheer time, which is certainly also a factor that we're bumping up against each other, perhaps more hours of the day in some cases, but perhaps more significantly is we're encountering each other in more intimate ways often and in, in our more intimate aspects of our lives. That's Carl Steyert, co-founder of several intentional communities and former resident at Findhorn and Oroville, communities well-known for their longevity. For Carl, it's not only that conflict in shared living spaces arises from sharing more intimate parts of our lives together, but it is this very intimacy that can bring up the stuff we thought we left behind in our families, reminding us of what we loved about them and what we hoped we'd never see again. So for myself, I find that when we're encountering each other in the kitchen, when we're encountering each other around our leisure time, that's really different than encountering each other just within a business setting or within a workplace. There's a different sort of quality of how we want all of ourselves perhaps to be a bit more welcome in an intimate space, in a shared living space. And another aspect of this that I think is related is that when we live together with other people, particularly if we do so over a longer period of time and we develop a bit more closeness with each other, we begin to, in my experience, like reactivate family pattern dynamics. Like we begin to have the same kind of attachment distress or attachment bonding and that both has the, the plus sides and some of the challenges that we had with our family of origin. So when we live together with people, a lot of those sort of young patterns, whether they were positive or negative or a mixture, can resurface pretty quickly in my experience when we're living with other people. I have definitely experienced this in my time living in communities. Um, I've often said that being in community really reminds me of being in my family of origin and thinking that I've left certain patterns behind. I've done the personal practices. I've gone to the meditation retreats. I've done the therapy and the coaching, and I think I'm finished with it. And then somebody doesn't do the dishes. Yeah. And then it all comes back. <laughs> and then somebody wakes up early in the morning and makes a bunch of noise and it all comes rushing back. <laughs> The classic example is one that I often go back to is it's like the dirty dishes and how often that becomes this sort of lightning rod in so many communities. Because, yeah, as you say, like our, our kind of core childhood reactions to how do we care for the common space, whether it's cleanliness, whether it's noise, can bring up a lot. You've been listening to Carl Steyert, community facilitator and nonviolent communication trainer visiting with correspondent Senjan on why conflict in shared living spaces can have such a more intimate and challenging quality than conflict in other spaces. To listen to our full interview with Carl and links to his work, you can go to peacetalksradio.com, peacetalksradio.com, and look for our August 2022 episode. We'll have more from Sen and her guests after a short break on Peace Talks Radio. Stay tuned.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Senjan, and today she's exploring different angles on conflict in shared living spaces. We're going to hear more from the author of the seminal guide to community living, Creating a Life Together. That's Diana Leaf Christian in just a few moments and more from Maria Silvia next up too, on why we have conflict when all we want to do is live well together. Again, here's correspondent Sanjan with more of her own tales of trying to live well together on her path. I had no idea what I was walking into when I started my first year of university living with these two women. I got through it by spending most of my time out of the apartment and coming home mainly to sleep and eat. I couldn't have been happier to leave that situation and now move into another apartment with people I knew a little better. The next year, I lived with two other women whom I shared some more studious values with. But, as it turned out, wanting to do well in school didn't necessarily equate to living well together either. My daughter is 20 years old, and she moved in last year for the first time with a friend in college, and I could see the train wreck ahead. (laughs) They had a good relationship, lots of things in common, and despite my guidance to my daughter, they did not talk about agreements around the shared space. So this is very typical of how we do this type of relationship, right? Then moving into a shared space, whether it's with a romantic partner or a friend, we just rely on good intentions. Or being able to go with the flow and... (laughs) Yes, and hope for the best. Instead of having conversations about needs and how to get those met, that, of course, requires self-awareness. That if you're going to live with someone else, you have awareness of what's important to you in your living space. And if you're used to living just with your family of origin or by yourself, you maybe never had to think about it. Having conversations about our needs and setting up agreements and how to get them met. Sounds obvious to me now, after over 20 years of sharing living space. But... When I first started out on the roommate rodeo, I fell into this most rookie fallacy. But there are things that are very particular to each of us as to what we need in our space in terms of stuff and cleanliness and beauty and other beings like plants or animals. And it's a big mistake not to talk about those things. There are more complex things like noise level and administration of money, if that's an issue too. So preemptive talks about this are so powerful. And yet, at least in the societies that I navigate, people are so reluctant to do that. Probably because we don't even know how little we know when we first set out on a co-living adventure. Knowing ourselves and what we need and then being able to communicate those needs, and then empathizing with others when they express their needs, 
requires a decent amount of self-awareness and relational skill. And those are things we only have so much of as young adults. But it's not only the inexperience of youth that lends to messy roommate situations. There's another reason why we're reluctant to anticipate and therefore plan for conflict in our living situations, be they with roommates or romantic partners, when it inevitably happens. We are clinging on to, we just need to find the right person. And if we find the right person, we don't need to go through all that mundane unpleasantness. And I think that we'll have to wake up from that dream very soon because it's not working very well. What you said is also a frame that many people take to intimate relationships. As long as I find the right partner, I won't need to do all of this upfront talking. You know, what kind of domestic living uh, situation do you like? You know, when do you go to bed? As long as I let the, yes. the romance carry me forward, that we won't need to go mm -hmm. through this kind of structural stuff. Absolutely. And I know this is not universal. This is just the culture that I, I am immersed in. But we are just so addicted to this idea of romance and the one and the person who's make it all perfect. And my goodness, <laughs> we, just, we just land crashing from that one. I'd like to take a moment here and introduce the notion of intentional communities. Most of us have some experience of living with other adults we're not related to. For some of us, just a few years of this experience is enough to last a lifetime. And we then find a long-term living partner, maybe start our own families, and continue the cycle of planting the seeds of family dynamics in our children. For others, the experience of co-living might actually be exactly what we're looking for, for quite a while longer, maybe even for the very long term. Some of us might even look specifically for other people motivated by the same reason we have for wanting to live closely together. Enter intentional communities, the intersection of expertise of our four guests. But how exactly do intentional communities differ from other shared living arrangements? To answer this question, we turn to longtime community trainer and author of the seminal guide to intentional communities, Creating a Life Together, Diana Leaf Christian. An intentional community is where a group of people live together and they have a common shared purpose. Their common shared purpose is why they have created their intentional community, which is where the word intentional comes from. I'm living in an intentional community right now, here in Berlin, Germany. We're still pretty early on in our journey, but there's a lot that resonates with how Diana described it. There are a lot of kinds of intentional communities, but you can see how this is different from living with housemates or living with your family of origin. You intentionally have this shared purpose for why we live here. So you have a choice. You've decided that you want to live together, and it's also for the long term foreseeably. So it differs from a flat share where you might be roommates for a couple of months or a year or a few years, but you might not ever think that you're going to live with your roommate forever. Most people who start communities or join them imagine they will be there throughout their lives. This is not always the case. Sometimes people need to leave and go live somewhere else for some other reason. But generally, that is your intention. So thank you for adding that layer to it. Yes, it's intended to be ongoing. This might sound like a lot, as if simply living together wasn't enough. If inevitable conflict seems to be the byproduct of all this sharing of space and resources, why do some of us seek it so much? As a student, 
sharing living space was an obvious choice. At the time, an 18-something-year-old like me definitely did not have all the skills I needed to live what anyone might consider a well-rounded life. Nor did any of my roommates. But if we banded together, collectively, we might just figure out how to put together a decent meal. I still remember one of the first meals I cooked for myself, living in my first apartment with my two 19-year-old roommates. Half-cooked spaghetti with soy sauce and black pepper with a side of canned tuna. Don't judge. It was all we had in our pantry at the time. When I talked to some of my friends who are die-hard solo nesters and who wouldn't trade it for anything, they can't understand why I've chosen to keep living with people all these years, even when I have the choice to be on my own. It turns out, our impulses to cohabitate are pretty commonplace and can extend far beyond our college years. Hear now a few voices from residents of the Life Itself Intentional Community in Berlin, Germany. Interviewed by Sen on what made them choose an intentional community over any other kind of living arrangement. My name is Vertel. I am 34 years old. I was born in North Carolina and then my dad was a Marine. The reason I live in an intentional community because it reminds me when I was growing up and I have fixed people in my family, so I'm always used to being around a lot of people. It's nice, but also you don't really get a voice. And I was like the second from the youngest. It's nice to figure that out as an adult with people and have conversations around like living and stuff because I think sometimes you miss that when you're younger because of family dynamics. My name is Ilya and I'm 32 years old. I was born in Russia and grew up in Germany for most of my life. And my number one reason for living in an intentional community is that I can explore how to go through difficult situations together, how to be open for new perspectives and find new ways of solving problems or filling out possibilities that I didn't expect before. I'm Miranda, I'm 26 years old, I'm from Mexico. I think the main reason for living in an intentional community is to share the joys and the burdens of everyday life and to create support systems that help us lead a better life together. I feel like people care here, that there's like a very solid foundation of caring people that are not indifferent to the world around them or to each other. And that gives me a lot of safety in a foreign country, which I think makes a huge difference in the way I experience my everyday life. If you would, tell somebody about what to expect when going into an intentional community? What would you say for someone who had no idea what it was? <laughs> Chaos and happiness and excitement and frustration and noise and laughter and weirdness. Now part of Sen's interview with community founder, trainer and facilitator, Laird Schaub. The impulse to live together comes from several angles in the culture that could, some could be economic, it's cheaper to live together, or people become aware that sharing things requires less money per person than owning it individually. So there's that impulse. In addition, there's relational or social impulses that people want more relationship at the center of their life. And so living together allows immediate access to that rather than everybody in a separate home. 
And there's also just even theoretical idea that, gee, I don't really like the competitive culture. I'm always struggling and fighting to win or prevail. Or, I mean, competition is exhausting. And they, they really would like a life that's more cooperatively centered. And that impulse could be very accurate in terms of they will be happier in what they're seeking for those reasons. However, that doesn't mean they know how to do it. So we want to live together because we're wired for social connection. Resource sharing makes our lives easier. And a steadily increasing number of us are getting majorly disillusioned with late-stage capitalism. But our hardwiring from being brought up in a culture of scarcity might not be so easy to leave behind. I mean, most of us are raised in a culture where we've learned competitive dynamics, which means even if you don't want to be living that way, when the push comes to shove about something, and it could be something small, but if it matters to you in that moment and has stakes, then we tend to be combative or manipulative or whatever the different strategies we develop in the mainstream, rather than how do we work this out? So even if you believe in cooperation, it doesn't mean you know how to do it. So we have this urge to be with people and to cooperate with them in the best of our imagination, right. but we bring these maladaptive coping mechanisms, things that have helped us survive in the outside world into this shared living situation. So a lot of us get into intentional communities because we want to live more wisely and cooperatively together. But we can't help but bring our hangovers from the mainstream culture wherever we go. We want to be part of the solution without realizing that we ourselves continue to be a part of the very problem we seek to solve. It's like trying to walk toward the light, not realizing that everywhere we go, we'll be bringing our own shadows. But don't worry, there's hope. Just because we've got shadows doesn't mean they'll continue to drive us down the same paths as they have in the past. Conflict is not an inherently bad thing. And if we can sit and speak with it, there's a lot we can learn about ourselves and the systems we exist in. Let's return to Diana for a moment. In her experience, there are a few broad categories that create conflict in intentional communities which I think apply across the board to all kinds of shared living situations. One of them is what Diana calls structural conflict. It's a term to explain when people get together to create a community and certain very, very important things are not put into place in the community's life in the very beginning. And when those things are missing, we can have a whole lot of conflict. Even if you're not living in an intentional community per se, from having lived with countless roommates over the last two decades, I can say that knowing the why behind choosing the place and the people you're living with is still pretty fundamental to calibrating how to be well. There's not a shared understanding of the system that you occupy together. And there is no shared structure for how we would decide things together and make decisions on our self-governance. It's just sort of random and chaotic. Well, that will create conflict. So that's a missing thing, which is what is our clear, fair, and participatory self-governance method, we don't have one. What, what if we don't have an incoming member policy and way to have new members join us, become oriented to who we are, and then we decide if we don't have clear shared agreements where we know what our agreements are and we have written them down and we can look them up and we attempt to abide by the agreements we ourselves made. If we don't have a way to, one, keep a record of what they are and two, help people stay accountable to them, 
in gentle, courteous ways. If we don't have that, we will have conflict because we don't have clear shared agreements or clear ways to help each other stay accountable to them. If we don't do enjoyable activities together, but we're just all business and all work, we can have conflict because we're not creating a culture of connection and trust and goodwill among ourselves. Those are the things that communities need to put into place from the start in order to not have what I call structural conflict. Even though Diana uses terms that are usually heard in the intentional community field, it's not a far leap to see how the ideas of self-governance, participation, and membership are extensions of what naturally exists in more general contexts like flat chairs. How do we decide if we should prioritize energy ratings or price when we need to replace a fridge? How do we share grocery costs and cleaning duties? Who do we want as a roommate? And who gets to stay overnight? Thinking about all this, I wondered about Maria's 20-year-old daughter who had moved in with her good friend. I would say that in her situation, it was the absence of the preliminary talks that we were referring to before. What's important to you in your space? But, Maria goes on, it wasn't only the lack of important structures and agreements about how to live well together that led to these young women not seeing eye to eye. I think these two very young people came without that self-awareness. Maybe they were used to being catered what's important to them at home, right, by their parents. I certainly did it with my daughter. Knowing her, I know what's important for her, so I have created a house that accommodated her needs. So for her, her living space has a naturalness to it that she will soon learn that is absolutely created. So I think that these two young people came without having those conversations. And then the next obstacle was when conflicts came up around whatever, the kitchen, the bathroom, the cat, only one of them had good tools for navigation. So that was very interesting to see these two girls my daughter, who had some self-awareness, you know, for a 20-year-old, and some conflict navigation tools clashing almost with this other culture represented in her roommate, whose vocabulary was all about right and wrong, shaming and blaming. And my daughter could not just work with that. So her attempts to cope very closely coached by me, come to the conversation, ask what are you needing? What are you feeling? Took her nowhere because the other person could not speak for herself. And instead, she would pronounce judgments on what's happening or what the other is doing. So that was an obstacle that they could not overcome. And they are separating ways after one year, which is you know, sad for me because they seem to be very good friends, but it's not surprising. And I think it's a good example of almost clashing of cultures. Probably culture is not the right word here, but when you have someone with some level of awareness and some sophistication and almost meeting this person from a different time. That was Maria Silvia, community facilitator and correspondent Senjan on what happened when a young 20-year-old moved in for the first time with her good friend without having had the necessary agreements in place beforehand. This is one of many stories in this two-part program exploring conflict in shared living spaces. 
You can listen to Sen's entire interview with Maria on peacetalksradio.com. Look for our August 2022 episode and click on the picture of Maria Silvia to hear the full interview. We're going to take a short break and be back with more soon right after this. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sen John, continuing our program about conflict in shared living spaces. We're going to hear soon from veteran community facilitator Laird Schaub on why it's essential to receive both the words and the emotion with which they are spoken as part of conflict navigation. But here again, today's correspondent, Senjan. Even with the best structures in place, we'll still knock each other off balance sometimes. Differing personal habits, political perspectives, expectations about how to speak to each other, or simply the occasional bad day can bring our well-planned living team to a rude awakening. For many of us, when we first tap into the presence of conflict energy in our fields, we might feel afraid of it. Especially if we haven't had good experiences with conflict in our upbringings, we may sense it and immediately want to suppress it in ourselves or in others. But, as we all know, bottling things up doesn't usually go well in the long term. In my earlier years of roommate roaming, I was much more on the avoidance side of conflict. And one thing that all these experts can agree on is that avoiding conflict is pretty much the only thing that ensures it'll come back in another way. But I didn't know that when I was younger. So I did a lot of suppressing and swallowing, trying to be cool with things that weren't so cool. Complaining to friends, feeling rage, resentment, and judgmental once things had been accumulating for a while. And sometimes I'd deal with it in pretty unhelpful ways. Once, I had a roommate who was always late to everything. Not just 10 or 15 minutes, but often hours after we'd asked her to come. So instead of telling her how it made me feel, the next time we had a gathering, I told her the start time was an hour earlier than what I told everyone else. When she arrived, this time only 45 minutes late, and was for once early to the party, she finally got the message. But not before feeling hurt and disrespected. We managed to have a good conversation about it in time, but for a little while, she was pretty upset with me. Fast forward nearly 20 years, and now I live in an intentional community, which also involves sharing living space. And, though I've gotten a lot better at knowing myself and engaging in conflict, from time to time, I still find myself in messy situations. You'll hear more about this later. 
But let's come back to Laird for a moment and his definition of conflict. Not only is there disagreement about what to do, but there's a non-trivial emotional component. So there's disagreements where that's not present. That's not the hard part. The hard part is there's reactivity. Reactivity. When something tips a situation over from an easy meeting of minds and hearts into a chasm of escalation. Reactivity can be triggered from literally anything. And we've all seen it happen and probably have had it happen to us. A sarcastic comment, the raising of an eyebrow. Even the way that someone might breathe could send a person into a spiral of emotional overload. Just a few weeks ago, it happened to me. I was on a walk with my two flatmates. We'd been going through a long period of tension with each other, and a lot was bubbling under the surface. One of them made an upset comment about, classically, the cleanliness of the apartment. Under normal circumstances, even though the comment might have been a bit sharp and misdirected, we would all have been able to take a step back from the situation and give ourselves some time before responding. But, as life usually goes, conditions weren't ideal, and I found myself getting immediately frustrated and defensive and counter-criticizing the way the comment was delivered. The three of us began spiraling immediately, and within minutes we were all hurt, angry, and in despair of how we'd let it get this far. None of us took pause to recognize each other for more than the words we were saying. We overlooked the energy with which the words were being delivered and responded only to what we thought we'd heard. If this sounds like something that's happened to you, this might be why. In the U.S., where I work, where I live, the culture I'm steeped in, there is a lot of uncertainty about whether to engage emotionally in principle, and then how would you do it even if you had the courage to try? And this is foundational in terms of how your response to conflict is going to be like. I've come to the view, and I didn't start here because I was raised in this culture and didn't have this awareness, but through living with other people that you've got to acknowledge and figure out how to work authentically with the feelings as a prelude to getting anything else done. But working with feelings is scary. I wanted to slow down a little bit there because there were so, so many interesting things. When someone goes into reactivity is when some people start to be quite frightened because yeah. in their pasts, when people go into reactivity, something bad is about to happen or they right. might be blamed or they might feel responsible. You did a good thing highlighting that if you've got only bad experiences with the expression of strong feelings, you're going to be afraid of them. That's a dangerous place. It makes perfect sense. I think the only way to recondition is to start having good experiences with it, which means a willingness or the courage to try to go in there with the belief that somebody knows what's going on or has ideas about how to manage this. It will not be about me. They may or may not like what I do, but I need the courage to be present and allow that to be there and hold the person in their distress accurately, not agree with them, but it, get it, what's going on. And when you do this, it turns out that getting the words right or the concepts or the story isn't as important as getting the affect right or the energy. So let me put flesh on those bones. If somebody says, Sen, I'm furious with you. You left the dishes again on the table. You know we have an agreement to clean them up. And we've asked you about this and you're still not doing it. Okay. And so I could say, wow, I can see you're really upset that Sen's done this and it's been a repetition and you're really frustrated. And that would be an accurate reframing of what they said, but the energy would be completely not connected. So if I'm facilitating 
I would say to that person, you are furious that Sen has done this thing over and over and you feel like you've made a clear statement about it and she's still not getting you don't know what you're with Sen. And so I would get into that energetic zone so that my electrons are in the same orbit as theirs. What happens if you do the former and not the latter is people will feel managed and that's different than feeling heard. And the feeling of being managed is again, there's a hierarchy. Someone is doing the managing and that means that they're superior somehow right. to you in that situation am, or they're neutral. I'm in control and you're not. You are less because you are out of control because you're in distress. And I need to be yeah. meeting them. There's nothing wrong with you. You're having a reaction. Let's see what it is. And this is foundational because when you're in reaction, it tends to be associated with distortion, meaning your ability to hear accurately what other people are saying and to work with the information. You have to have a bridge between people for communication to happen. And when somebody is in distress, that bridge is damaged. The first thing is bridge repair. If you don't have a connection where flow of information is accurately going, you're not going to do problem solving. You're not going to move ahead. You're going to be stuck in, you don't really understand my situation. I don't trust you or what you say. And so my first job when I come in is like, let me hear what you got. Tell me what the upset is about. Let me make sure I connect to your emotional experience of it. I'm not taking your side. I'm being present for your reality. And then I have to extend that to each person. And what if you're the person who's receiving that? So you're angry with Sen, with me, because I haven't done the dishes for the umpteenth time. And now I'm receiving all of this anger and I'm feeling frightened and I'm seeing myself going into reactivity. What do I do to center myself and to, you know, not deflect, not push it back, not manage, not anything, but just to hold that person while I'm feeling threatened myself? That's a good question. There's a couple angles on it. One is personal work. And the other one is how to get to the place where I can hear this. I can recognize what's going on in me in terms of my reaction. You need to assess what's going on for me. Am I in reaction and how serious is it? Some reactions are relatively minor. I can breathe through this. I can stay in it. Others are like, I'm overwhelmed. I, I am locked down. I can't hear. So the basic guidance in this moment is put your own oxygen mask on first. In other words, if you are overwhelmed, nothing good's going to happen for you. You need attention. You need care just like the other person does. Both of you need attention. A final word from Laird, at least for now, on keeping your cool the next time someone gets riled up at you for not having done the dishes. So the two things to keep in mind when you're going into reaction is self-assessment. How much am I in reaction and need to be held? Just heard is what I mean by that. Accurately heard what's going on. And what can I put in place to support that happening? In some cases, for instance, that might mean I need another person to be present for this conversation. When I interact with this one person, it scares me. We don't have a great history together. I need somebody else to help hold the container so it's not just me alone. And then that itself will reduce my anxiety. Things like that. Those are options you've got. Like how to set it up so the exchange is not delayed and yet it's uh, safer and more accessible. And what I hear there is the importance of having systems so that it's not only in the heat of the moment, you recognize that you're in reaction, you have to figure out what to do in that moment where it's difficult, but to anticipate that these things will happen, to have a bit of foresight and to plan around them. Many of us may want to live together because we're moved by an age-old drive to form tribes. Whether we're motivated by resource sharing, the desire to be in the company of others, or a shared vision to build toward a sustainable future together, we're going to run into conflict. 
and probably sooner than we expect. I thought about the 11-year-old me cowering in terror as my furious mother wanted to kick me out of the house for not practicing piano, and how many additional layers of complexity I have now, nearly 30 years later, to understand how this could have been better navigated. How the why of my piano playing could have been made clearer to me. What structures could have been put into place to help me anticipate some more humane consequences if I didn't follow through on my practice schedule. Certainly, more attentive listening on the part of my mother towards me, her very willful child, and restoration after the hurt had happened. Given that conflict is likely going to persist, no matter how well-structured our plan for living together is, or how evolved we are as individuals or groups, we do well to learn how to be with it and to move through it with as much grace, compassion, and good humor as possible. How do we manage resentment when it comes to different levels of contribution and participation in a shared living space? Is a shared living space a microcosm for larger societal dynamics? Are there some personalities that are simply too hard to live with? In part two of this program, we're investigating how power, boundaries, and especially challenging personalities contribute to the complexity of conflict. Correspondent Senjan, and earlier in that segment, you heard her talking with Laird Schaub on how to manage emotional reactivity in the midst of conflict in a shared living space. You can hear the entire interview with Laird Schaub at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for our August 2022 episode page and click on the picture of Mr. Schaub. peacetalksradio.com is also where you go to hear all of the programs in our series dating way back to 2002. You can see photos of our guests. You can read and share transcripts there. Sign up for our podcast, order CDs, explore our entire archive, and you can also make a donation to keep this independent program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. This was part one of a two-part program on navigating conflict in places where we live together with other humans. Part two comes your way soon. Keep an eye and ear out for it at our website. It'll be our September 2022 episode when released. By the way, you can hear more stories from Sen's intentional community on her podcast, The Life Itself Hubcast. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sen Shan, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.